0: I'm perfect and have no problems.
1: <gasps> I have some problems.
0: <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Vox Media Podcast, Podcast Network <laughs> podcast. I am Ezra Klein, not Matt Iglesias. He is in He's Western in Germany. Europe somewhere.
1: He's, a, he's in Germany for the German elections.
0: Yeah, he's been posting things on Instagram. Um, he, he's, I think, enjoying uh, his sojourn away from American Meeting politics.
1: Meeting our Weeds fans and, um, abroad.
0: But I am joined by Sarah Cliff. Hey, that's Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hey. How's it going?
1: It's great. <laughs>
0: it's great. Um, and we have a very big Weeds episode today. Uh, we have a new paper by Cass Sunstein called Unleashed. That is pretty interesting, I think, on rhetorical dynamics of how social movements begin, and pretty applicable to the Donald Trump presidency. Uh, but first, finally, after a couple years of doing the show, it's time we did an episode on health care, um, and in and in particular on the Graham Cassidy Bill,
1: the Graham Cassidy Johnson Heller Bill.
0: How is that? I'm not going to I'm not going to do this. I'm interested in how Heller's on this bill that his governor, Brian Sandoval, uh, has asked to not have brought up in the Senate at yeah. all. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about the process, which is much weirder on this bill than it has been on any of the other bills. Like this is a if you thought previous GOP health care bill processes were fucked up. Wait till you hear how this one's <laughs> going to go. Um, but the. Policy is uh, much more radical and ambitious and sweeping here. You've I think called it the most radical of all the GOP healthcare bills, Sarah. Why is that true?
1: Yes. Uh, so I have spent a lot of this year reading Republican healthcare plans, and they generally look very similar in that a lot of people lose coverage, premiums go go down for some people, go up pretty significantly for sick people, but. Graham-Cassidy is really in a category of its own, in my view. And and the reason for that is the other Republican plans, they essentially make a poorly funded version of the Affordable Care Act. They ratchet down what states get to run a Medicaid expansion. They pull back the tax credits for people who are middle-income and buy in the marketplaces. But those things still exist in some sort of form. There still is a marketplace where there are subsidies there still is the opportunity to do Medicaid expansion. You're just going to get a lot less money from the federal government. Graham-Cassidy is not a poorly funded version of Obamacare. It essentially blows up the Affordable Care Act. It takes all the money that is being spent right now on Medicaid expansion, on the marketplaces. It bundles that up. It cuts 200, 215 to $239 um, billion off the top. Um, over the next decade. It Can a ask a
0: question on yes. that? Because I think this is a really important piece of it that I do not understand <laughs> as well as you do. So what's happening is we're taking the Obamacare money, putting it into a lump sum, and then basically attaching it to a growth rate that is slower. Yes. Is that how the cut works? It's yeah. because it's the growth rate is slower? Right.
1: So there's nothing in Graham-Cassidy that says, we take all the money and we cut it by X percent. Uh-huh. But by the time you get to 2026, this works out to a 17% cut. And it's because, like you said, Ezra, the funding formulas just work quite differently. And so so there are no more marketplaces under Graham-Cassidy. There is no more Medicaid expansion. Those are things that the federal government is not involved with, does not fund. That all disappears, that infrastructure. And the money is divided up in a really odd way. So one of the things Senator Cassidy, who I spent some time in his office on Friday, he will point out that the funding for healthcare is very uneven right now across the country a state like California is getting so much money whereas a state like um like Alabama for example is getting less money. The reason for this disparity is quite obvious, obvious. California expanded Medicaid, Alabama didn't, but he looks at this problem and he says Look, they've had seven years to participate in Medicaid expansion. They've decided not to. This is an intractable problem. And what we need to do is take all the money that exists and redistribute it in a more equal way. California should not get to keep all its Medicaid expansion money. It needs to send some of that to Alabama. So you have this funding formula that essentially takes from states that have been very good at implementing Obamacare. And I want to point out, because I think there is this narrative that has developed, that it's basically redirecting money from liberal states to conservative states, that is true to an extent. It also hurts a lot of more conservative states. Um, For
0: instance. For
1: instance, (laughs) Senator Cassidy's home state of Louisiana, which recently expanded Medicaid. And I've got to say, I was in Cassidy's office, and he spent all this time talking about how great Medicaid expansion has worked in Louisiana. They signed up 450,000 people. It's been faster than they ever expected. And then very abruptly transitions to the fact But it's not fair for, you know, us to hold on to that money. We need to share it with the rest of the country. Um, And so you see states like Louisiana losing out, Kentucky losing out, Nevada, where Heller is from, losing out.
0: Could I add a thought into this? Yeah. Because I think this is a really important thing to understand about this bill. Every one of these Republican plans has in some way been fatally hampered because they insist on using reconciliation and not just creating healthcare policy and trying to get some Democratic votes or, or, or whatever it might be. And so you you might ask, like listening to, to you, Sarah, well, why not just make the funding sort of idealized Obamacare funding. Why not say this is going to, uh, you know, it's funding that's going to adjust by need would be one way to do it. You could also just say it's funding that matches what we think the funding would be if everybody expanded Medicaid, right? And and, and that's how you equalize it. And so then, you know, it's not, instead of like bringing California down, Mm -hmm. you bring Alabama up. And the answer, I mean, there are probably a lot of answers. There's ideological answers. Republicans don't want to spend more money on health care, blah, 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 blah. But one answer is that under reconciliation, they cannot um, spend money like that. They, they, they are hampered by sort of what they have already put into the reconciliation instructions, and they can't explode the federal deficit. And and just in general, spending money is quite a bit harder. They obviously are not going to be able to impose new taxes to raise anything. So so they're, they're really hamstrung. And so they're hamstrung into this really, really messed up funding formula that makes states like Ohio a huge loser under this. So John Kasich has said, please don't bring this bill to the floor. Nevada is a huge loser. So Sandoval says, please don't bring this bill to the floor. Alaska is a huge loser. And by the way, I mean, Maybe none of these senators care, but that's Rob Portman and Dean Heller and Lisa Murkowski. And I, I just I, – I keep going back to this because they – there's a version of this bill, and, and we can talk about this, that I actually imagine could have gotten some bipartisan support or at least would have been a plausible candidate for it. But they would have had to go not do reconciliation. And they would have just had to say, we're going to try to create a healthcare bill. Not try to create like – an Obamacare appeal and replace that we can jam through by September 30th with 51 votes, no matter what happens. But, like, actually stop and try to create some health care policy. And that, to me, it's, like, the question I cannot answer is why they just never try that. Like, why it is just never the plan that we're going to create a bill where we think it can win some Democratic <laughs> support, we think it's a good bill, we think it's such a good bill that we're going to wait for Congressional Budget Office scores and defend those scores to the country. Like, why it is always this total Keystone Cops slipshod Process. It doesn't, it, they keep suggesting this, like it is some external force making them do this, and it is not. It is them.
1: I think there was actually a version of this, though. So I kind of like consider Cassidy Collins the like mm-hmm. early, early, early February version of this, which is, I wouldn't even consider them versions of the same bill. They just happen to have the same senator's name on them. But that was a bill that essentially, and you know, something I'd hear Senator Cassidy say a lot this winter was you know what, if California likes Obamacare, that's fine. They should keep running Obamacare. But in Louisiana, we don't like Obamacare, and we want to do something different. We want to take our money and change it. And I think that's kind of what— and, you know, I know some some liberal, liberal analysts looked at that bill. It does include, like, a slight budget cut for mm-hmm. California. But just ideologically, like, that is something that I think is appealing and interesting. I think it is certainly true that the Affordable Care Act has not been as— robust in certain places as um as its drafters would have liked and I think if Louisiana has some other plan and wants to try you know what I don't feel like I have strong objections to that but this is not that plan this is a plan where California Ohio Kentucky cannot run the programs they currently run they cannot continue keeping Obamacare on the work so even if you even if they do like it if they feel like it's working well for their state, And the incentives here are so perverse. Um, One of the states that's most interesting for me to look at is Florida, which is a state that did not expand Medicaid, but actually loses a lot of money through Graham-Cassidy. And the reason that it does is because Florida has been really excellent at signing people up for coverage. They, somewhat surprisingly, have um, the largest marketplace in the country. They get a million more dollars in tax credits than any other state in the country, and they've just done a really, really good job on outreach, which means they have a lot of money coming into the state. Cassidy Graham looks at a state like that and says, oh, no, 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 you don't deserve all that money. Um, you know, Alabama needs that money and Georgia needs that money. It is really, really odd and stunning to me that people who have decided to make an express decision not to expand coverage all of a sudden are rewarded with this windfall of money.
0: I have so many thoughts on this, but I want to ask you about a couple other pieces of this, because I think they're just important to make sure we we put into the, into the beginning of the show here. So, okay, so first 10 years, basically, in 2020, Cassidy Graham dissolves Obamacare. By 2026, there's a 17% cut. What happens in 2026?
1: <laughs> well, the block grant disappears, Ezra, because for some reason that has not been explained super well by any of the drafters of this bill— it is funded as a temporary rather than permanent program. Cassidy's office has argued that they are constrained by budget rules that they can't fund past. <laughs> I'd like to describe kind of like the confused shruggy that Ezra is giving me across the table.
0: The, this ha- The reason I'm so confused by this is that you do see this happen. The Bush tax gets mm-hmm. expired after 10 years. But the reason is under reconciliation, you cannot increase the budget deficit outside of the 10-year window. The way I understand Graham-Cassidy, there is no way it increases the budget deficit out of the 10-year window. So this trick you do of making things expire on, like, midnight 10 years from today, I don't understand why they're using it.
1: Nor do I. I have not gotten a good explanation of this. Again, they always come back to these budget rules, which I agree do not actually constrain them in some way. If you look at the—so there's two parts. One part we haven't talked about is there's the marketplace and the Medicaid expansion getting bundled up, turned into a block grant— there's also Medicaid getting overhauled. So all these per capita caps that showed up in the old Senate bill and the House bill, those are also going on. And those continue as a permanent program. So it's very confusing to me that the Medicaid funding, that continues permanently, but for some reason, the block grants drop off in 2027. Cassidy will make the argument that um, a future Congress, of course, they're going to step in and provide the funding, but it's somewhat tenuous. And you know, you've had a lot of Republican governors raising this concern. We don't want to take the Medicaid expansion because we're not sure if the government's going to fund it. I mean, this sends like a pretty strong signal. We're really not really sure if we're going to fund it. So there's also this question of, you know, let's say, you know, stick with Alabama. They've got all this money. I haven't really heard Alabama like clamoring for extra money to implement health care programs. I don't know if they want it, given this funding cliff, like what they would do with it. Uh, this... Yeah. I don't so, know. It doesn't make a lot of so, sense. So let's zoom
0: out then. So he, here's what I think we can, he, let me try to summarize this to you. Okay. And you tell me if this sounds right. First 10 years, Cassidy Collins, sorry, first 10 years, Cassidy Graham.
1: Graham Cassidy is Graham actually Cassidy, now has, has style.
0: All right. Graham Cassidy takes the healthcare system we have it takes the Obamacare Medicaid mm-hmm. expansion system, dissolves out money into a single funding stream, yes. redistributes that funding stream in a way that uh, means that states that are currently the states where Obamacare is performing well because they've taken the mm-hmm. Medicaid expansion and pushed hard to sign people up, they do not have enough money to keep running their current program. Yes. So they have to do something with a lot less. Other states that have shown not much interest in doing a lot of healthcare policy, they're given money with very few strings attached to do something where they don't really have to hit any goals at all. So that's for 10 years. At the end of that 10 years... Everything disappears, potentially, but maybe Congress reauthorizes it and or maybe they add new strings. I mean, we have no idea what that Congress will look like or what that constellation of political forces would look like. And then going forward after that, um, simultaneously, there are these deep, deep, deep Medicaid cuts that keep getting deeper going into that second decade. So Medicaid ends up pretty gutted. So that's yeah. Graham Cassidy.
1: That's the way that's what we're working with. And again, this is this is different from the other Republican plans, like way more this on. idea of. Block It's called a block grant when you kind of like give states just a lump sum of money. This idea of block granting the Medicaid expansion in the marketplaces, it doesn't show up in any of the other plans. And it really gives states a lot of leeway about what to do um, with that funding. It was pretty clear. It is exceptionally clear in the Affordable Care Act that money has to go to help get people health insurance. There were some strings that existed in the other Republican plans. It had to give health people health insurance, but maybe it wasn't low-income people. Maybe it was wealthier people. But again, the money was committed to health insurance. Under Graham-Cassidy, there's kind of this laundry list of things you can spend it on. You know, you could give all that money to your state hospitals and say, use this to, per- to pay for uncompensated care. You could create a high-risk pool and say, that's how we're going to use this money. There is no mandate in Graham-Cassidy that the block grant has to be put towards giving people coverage. It has to be put to some health-related purpose, but that's quite broad. And there isn't much to tether it to low-income people, which is something the ACA does quite clearly.
0: Which makes this a slush fund. So one thing that you might expect states to do, um, because we've seen this happen, this happened with uh, welfare reform. So some states that do not really want to to be increasing coverage, and, and by the way, it's a lot of work for a state to be told by 2020 you yes. have to build a whole new healthcare system. I mean, a lot of states didn't even bother to set up an exchange, right. even states that liked Obama. It's a lot like, easier eh. to
1: say, okay, hospitals, here's this money we got, use it wisely. So
0: you, there are a lot of ways. I mean, states do currently spend a fair amount of money on healthcare. There are a lot of ways to pump the money that you're now getting from the federal government into things that are, let's say, um, existing. Uh, needs of your state and then take the money that your state was spending on those needs and move it around. And, you know, the federal government can try to do certain things and it has little provisions that they can try to stop that from happening, but they're very ineffective. I mean, the way you would normally do something like this is you would set standards. You would say, okay, in order to qualify for the money, you have to come back to us and present a plan that has to be certified by HHS as it's going to cover, let's say, 90% 90% of your residents with coverage. Or it's going to have, you know, as much coverage as Obamacare, but at a lower cost. I mean, there are ways you can do this. You set things up and then the plans have to be assessed uh, against that set of goals. Graham-Cassidy does not have goals like that. So, when, it, it yeah, it, oh, it has it, it
1: has one very vague goal. So I think it doesn't hit what you're talking yeah. about. But there is this line that says that people with pre-existing conditions have to have adequate access to health to care. None of that is defined, though. So a lot of that, you know, and I've talked to some experts who say, Could you stand up a high-risk pool and that counts as adequate? Like, maybe. Um, Could you just give your hospitals a bunch of money to pay for uncompensated care? Um, And and this actually kind of gets to one other area of the bill that I definitely want to discuss, which is what happens to pre-existing conditions, what happens to the individual market? Because I think there's a lot going on there that even for people who don't receive these tax credits would stand to see big changes. So then this is relatively similar to some of the other bills. There is a waiver in Graham-Cassidy that lets states um, bring back pre-existing conditions, um, ditch the essential health benefits, meaning they don't have to cover maternity care, don't have to cover prescription drugs. Under Graham-Cassidy, if you applied for one of these waivers and it was accepted, then you could charge people more because they are sick, um, because they are pregnant, because of anything except for age or membership in a protected class under the U.S. Constitution. Those are the the only things— you are barred from charging higher prices on you could take out maternity care you could take out mental health you could take out a lot of benefits and all of this would happen in 2020 we're looking at 2 years from now when the individual market and you know we're talking about people who aren't getting these subsidies people who are just you know buying their own health insurance right now from you know blue cross in their state that you would see very much of a return to the market that existed before Obamacare. And this block grant money, maybe it'd be used to offset some of that. Or, you know, maybe you would just have the market that existed before the Affordable Care Act. That that is very easy for me to see in a state that applies for one of these waivers.
0: So it's worth saying that this is weird. This is a much more radical, much in many ways crueler. The the internal politics of this bill, the way it punishes mostly, although not exclusively, blue states is unusual. And I could imagine politicians who you would expect this to come from, but those politicians were not bill Cassidy and Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham is among Republicans known as one of the most bipartisan members of the senate he's was a a, a continuous partner. Of Democrats on things like climate change, um, where he did a lot of work on things like trying to close Guantanamo. Uh, he, he is somebody who does work across the aisle a lot. He had a lot of criticisms of the process of the, the previous health care bills that Republicans put forward. We'll talk about process a little bit later, but I, I do just want to put a pin in that. Bill Cassidy is a doctor from Louisiana. He made his name over the last year by being a Republican, Sarah, as you mentioned, who had a view that, you know what, if blue states like Obamacare, they should keep it. He talked a lot about coverage. He went on the Jimmy Kimmel show and said he wanted anything to pass the Jimmy Kimmel test, which is that a kid who's born with very, very serious pre-existing conditions could get very comprehensive coverage so that kid's life would be saved. Um, He has talked about the importance of insurance. At one point, he wanted to see a CBO score showing that the Republican bills would not lead people to lose coverage and would not increase the debt. These are two Republican senators who you might have expected to come in at the end of this process and say, hey, we're going to try to figure out the bipartisan way to do this. And what's crazy about this to me is that their bill actually has a germ of that idea in it. Um, I I was, you know— Gesturing towards this earlier, but you could really imagine a bill like this. That what it does is it holds funding basically constant. Um, it it gives funding, it gives state access to whatever funding they would get under mm-hmm. Obamacare if they were working to, to implement Obamacare. So states don't have to take the Medicaid expansion, but they can but they don't lose access to the funds if that happens. And then gives them a huge amount of flexibility in a way that Obamacare, it has some waivers, but those waivers are pretty hard to use. So yeah, California can try to figure out single-payer, or they can keep Obamacare. Alabama can go towards a consumer-directed health care option. Um, Indiana can expand what Mike Pence did on Medicaid to something much bigger. You can let all kinds of states go in all kinds of directions. It's a very conservative approach, a very federalist approach. Um, you can put it through a much more normal process. There is a version of this bill that you can imagine, and, and it's funny because when— Tom Price was named HHS secretary, something that I got interested in was he had had an old bill uh, when he was in the House with Tammy Price, who's now a, a Wisconsin senator. Tammy Baldwin. Tammy Baldwin, I'm sorry. Um, she's now a senator from Wisconsin, but she's a, a liberal Democrat. She was in the House previously. Um, and they had this bipartisan bill to let states sort of do their own thing. This is pre-Obamacare, so it's in a different context, but it was meant to create this federalist solution for health care. And I was saying then that that's how Republicans should try to deal with Obamacare. They shouldn't make these Decisions about subsidy schemes and everything else. It should turn the whole thing over to states. And like that's conservative, it's federalist, it's their long time principles, but it's a lot more appealing. And I talked to Obamacare architects who said, Yeah, you know, honestly, that idea has some appeal to me. It's definitely better than what I worry Republicans would do otherwise. I talked to Republicans who like that idea a lot. And then It's like this every single time. They come out with one of these ideas. It is—they cloak it in the rhetoric of federalism, of state flexibility, of block grants, and then it's all just smoke and mirrors for these giant, giant, giant cuts to spending. And you cannot do a good program with that much less money in it, with that much more uncertainty in it. So I guess, to me, this is the thing that is just a mystery about this. They don't need to be in reconciliation. They could at least try a normal process— you have two people here who have quite a bit of credibility among Senate Democrats. So they would be able to get people to work with them in good faith. And they have the beginnings of an idea here that, yeah, this could be a grand compromise on health care. There's enough money coming from the federal government that states can do what they need to do. But we're not making Alabama do what California does. We're not making Idaho do what New Jersey does. And that should have appeal. And that's what they say they're doing, but that's not what they're doing. They're actually just gutting spending on Medicaid and Obamacare. It's, it's bizarre and it's like the way they're doing it. we can talk about process uh, is irresponsible, but it's also just unnecessary.
1: Yeah, I think let's let's go into process soon. But one thing I think, so I've had the same thought, but I actually don't I guess what the one thing I don't get and I, I agree like I found this idea appealing like if California says it's working, let's let them do it, let's let Oklahoma do something different. I don't know there's a lot of appetite on the Democrat side to pursue anything like that. Um, The sense I've gotten from Senate Democrats is that they want—like, their top position right now is to have Obamacare in every single state, and they see very little incentive to get behind a bill that lets Oklahoma do something different. And I kind of disagree with that stance. Like, I think there should be a little more openness to the idea that some states— really are struggling with the Affordable Care Act. They only have one insurance plan in their market. The premiums are going up pretty significantly. You have a significant number of people who are really struggling to pay their plans. So if, you know, Oklahoma wants to experiment with with less robust health insurance plans, like, that seems a worthwhile experiment to me. I don't see this path to, like, a grand bipartisan compromise. And and I think a lot of that falls on Democrats who— see a world where Obamacare exists in all 50 states and very few reasons to work on a bill that would change that dynamic.
0: I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think it's probably even right. Um, But I do think a lot of that has to do with process.
1: Process. Hey, listeners, I am here with a message from one of our very smart sponsors, The Economist. They know how much I value their insights into stories that are shaping our world, So they're offering all Weeds fans a free copy of the magazine. As someone who loves to get down in the weeds, The Economist really gives you a chance to dig even deeper in what's going on in the world. They don't really have a horse in the race, so you can trust them to bring you the straight-up facts from politics to tech to science and environment, and, of course, economics and healthcare. The fact is, we can only get Weedsy on so many stories here on the podcast. So do yourself a favor and visit economist.com slash Weeds to get a free sample copy of The Economist right now. They've got the lowdown on the forces that are impacting our lives and changing our world. And they don't waste a single word. They cut right through the noise to help you stay entertained and well-informed. Dig into The Economist today. Just visit economist.com slash weeds or search Economist Weeds to sample your free copy. That is economist.com slash weeds. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode of The Weeds, then you should check out How I Built This. Every week, host Guy Raz talks to the people behind some of the most inspiring companies and movements in the world, bringing you stories of incredible persistence, grit, and insight. Find it on the NPR One app or wherever you find your podcasts.
0: So, So the reason I say that the process is important here, before we get into the weird process of this bill, is that... You don't first need Democrats to to sign on to this. What you need is 8 of them. Right? I mean, you need enough to get over the the, the filibuster threshold. So you need your Joe Mansions of West Virginia, your Heidi Karen Heid McCaskills, your Heidi Hyde camps. Like you need you need 8 of them, which is not easy. I'm not suggesting that's easy. But the thing that you would normally do and, and Is You would start in a bipartisan process trying to do it, and you would just take your time, right? You would go through amendments, in part because it also just makes your bill better to have hearings, to have discussion, to have CBO analysis. I mean, to just go through the basic work of legislating, to hear the weak spots pointed out, to shore it up. Um, even if you don't end up getting their support, your bill comes up better on the other end for having gone through the the effort to get their support. And so, yes, maybe at the end of that, they all abandon you. And then you go back to reconciliation and you rewrite the instructions in a way that makes sense for this bill that you now want to do. Because it is worth noting, the original reconciliation instructions or Republicans are using, they are not designed for this health care bill. They didn't see this one coming. Um, and it, you, you would write it in a different way if you're really trying to get it, a bill like this. So I'm not actually saying that it's a sure thing they could have gotten them. Although, I mean, I think just part of legislating is that you try. Democrats tried on Obamacare. They failed, but they did the Gang of Six. They did all that stuff. They did the the open amendment processes and committees. So you try because it makes your bill better. You try because it shows the public you're trying. You try because it gives you time to craft a bill that is actually worthwhile as opposed to trying to pass your bill by next Saturday when, like, basically nobody had details on this a couple of weeks ago. Um, but that is not what they're doing. They're jamming it in the end of this process in ways that has some some real, real weird effects. So so what are they doing? Yeah.
1: Well, I'm going to disagree with you slightly yeah. again there. So I feel like I do give Cassidy credit for some trying earlier this year, that he was reaching out to the height camps and mansions. And it just never, I mean, it never got any traction when you had clear repeal bills, a bill that would keep Obamacare partly in place. So I do want to give him credit for reaching out to those folks I
0: sort of don't. So I want to just yeah. push you back a little bit. I want to push back on this yeah. a little bit just because what happened there was Republican leadership was not allowing that bill to have any process behind it. So, I mean, what was the point of working? I mean, the reason right. the Max Bocket, the Gang of Six thing worked was that was a bill Democratic leadership was going to bring to the floor eventually. So investing a bunch of time in it right. was like you were on the vehicle. Yeah, yeah,
1: that makes sense. I think you're right on leadership. Gets no credit for this. But yeah. Cassidy himself, I do want to give him credit for you know trying to reach out to Democrat senators on this, like, trying to make this a thing at a moment. No one wanted it to be a thing. Yeah, that's fair. But I think it has evolved in, like, a very different direction. And it's... A, one of the mysteries of this has kind of been to me, like, what sort of healthcare system does Senator Cassidy watch? Because he
0: is... One with his name on it.
1: One where he's considered, like, the leading Republican health wonk, apparently. Because what he worked on in February and what he's working on now just are so night and day. And they're so different. And that's like the conclusion I come to is he wants one where he's kind of the guy who does Republican healthcare policy and cares very little about what the actual details of that policy are. Um, But they really are two very, very different plans. And I think it is very notable that Susan Collins is like keeping this, like, you know, won't touch this with a 10-foot pole at this point where her name is not on it. She doesn't really talk about it. She says she has a lot of concerns. Um, This is not the plan from february this is a very very different plan but let's talk about process so right now republicans are kind of working around the september 30th deadline the reason they are working around a september 30th deadline it's because they have a reconciliation bill and it essentially expires on september 30th that the end of the fiscal year ends this these this bill is no longer a vehicle they can use to move it and they want to use this reconciliation bill because it allows them to move something with 50 votes. Once we get to um, October 1st, then they would need 60 votes to move any sort of Obamacare repeal package. So that is leading to this very bizarre process with very little consideration of what is actually in this bill, it sounds like, and a very brushed process where we are looking at Hearing on Monday in the Senate Finance Committee, a CBO score sometime early next week and possibly a vote next Wednesday. So it's like process crunched into—and not a full CBO score, I'll say, like a preliminary score that does not tell us how many people lose coverage, which
0: I think you that's presume really is something
1: important. you would want to know. It sounds like they will get the budget numbers they need to like move through the actual— um, checkbox of moving something through the Senate, but those coverage numbers, um, because this is a such a bizarre bill that CBO hasn't analyzed anything similar, this is the sort of bill that takes them a long time to work through. But this September 30th deadline is kind of artificial. It, you know, it is certainly the deadline for passing it this year, but they can do this next year. Like, there is nothing that says Obamacare repeal dies forever and ever if you don't do this by the end of next week. At the start of 2017, they drafted a reconciliation bill. They put in instructions for, here, we want you to do X, Y, and Z and save this amount of money in committees, which is Senate-speak for these committees of oversight and you need to repeal Obamacare and save this amount of money. They can do that again in 2018. And so I think when you hear a lot of these things like, this is our last chance, this is our last shot, we have to do it now. Our colleague Jeff Stein talked to a lot of... um, Republican senators yesterday, nine of them. And this was a lot of their thinking. Um, I think it was Pat Roberts of Kansas who told him, you know, this is this is the last car leaving town, so we've got to get in it. Which, like, if some, like, shitty, falling-apart car is, like, leaving town, it's like, well, it might explode a mile down the road. You probably wouldn't be like, well, it's my last ride, so I better just drive away. In
0: particularly it. not if... There's some other cars leaving town in a couple of days, right? right. Like you it's more to convenient to leave town today, but 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 it's coming. This is, I think, a, a real funny sub theme here. I, I asked um, Lindsey Graham, spokesperson, uh, tell me why they didn't, why did they marry such huge spending cuts into this bill, and also why did they just not take a breath, pull us out of this reconciliation process, give it real hearings, get a real CBO score, like. Try to have some open amendment processes. This is stuff that both Graham and Cassidy said they wanted to see in healthcare process. So, so why are they breaking their own promises on this? And um, Bishop, <laughs> Kevin Bishop, wrote back to me and he said, I saw what you wrote earlier today. I hadn't written anything yet, but I think you might have meant one of your pieces, actually. Um, it would be a waste of time. It would be a waste of both of our time to talk about this. And Nobody's even, this to me is one of these things. Nobody's trying to defend any of this. Like this stuff about like, it's the last car leaving town. It's actually not a defense. It's not even a real attempt at a defense. It's a description of what is going on. You know, I actually thought what Bishop said was was a little bit revealing. Republicans have treated everything here like just all the normal parts of legislating are a waste of time that they can't possibly do, like hearings, amendments, um, you know, going back and forth with the CBO, like like taking the time to sell a bill to the public and try to explain it. Uh, everything you might do, and they've kept saying like, no, no, no we 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 have no time. We have to do it this year under these reconciliation instructions, and it's not true. One thing that you didn't mention, but it's my understanding, because of the way the calendar would work out here, because of when they would get even their preliminary budget-only CBO score and would pass it through the Senate, so it would then have to go to the House. Mm -hmm. But because the clock would be about to run out, the House would not be able to amend it. Yes, Um, The House would just not have time to amend it. It would just have to be an up-or-down vote. So this is – Compared to every other bill that we've talked about, in the past it's always had this saying of like, well, yeah, this bill doesn't look very good and it was drafted really quickly and nobody knows what it would do. But don't worry, we're going to go to committee and take some time working out the details. That doesn't happen here. Like, this is the most truncated jarring of the processes. It's the one with the least information. They will have less of a CBO score on this bill than the AHCA. Didn't get the final one for their little their the sort of amended amended version, but they did have a real CBO score on the main one. Um, there's less information here, there's less time, there's less amending, there's less time to go back and forth on it. This is no way to reconfigure the American healthcare system. And like if you listen to what Republicans said after Obamacare and also what Graham and Cassidy were saying during the Republican processes that's what they said too. Like they don't, this was not what they described as a way to do this and they don't need to do it.
1: I have a lot of thoughts and we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back to them. I love being able to learn about anything that interests me whenever I want. And with The Great Courses Plus, I can do that. I can watch all these fascinating video lectures and learn from award-winning experts about topics that range from world history, psychology, even learning how to cook a little bit better. There are over 8,000 different lectures, which means there's always something new to explore. One course Weed's listeners might really enjoy is the series on the economics of uncertainty. It kind of shows you that the trick to surviving and thriving in an uncertain economy is to understand the sources of risk and how much of a threat they pose. It's led by the award-winning economist, Connell Flonkamp, and he offers these great tools that we can use in all aspects of our lives, including thinking critically and weighing risks versus benefits. We want our listeners to experience The Great Courses Plus too. And right now they're giving you all an entire month of unlimited access to watch this and any of their lectures for free. All you need to do is sign up through our special URL. You can start your free month right now by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So I think someone who will be very interesting to watch in this is John McCain next week, who is someone who did not vote for the last bill because of concerns about process, but has actually been an integral player and kind of breathing new life into this Graham-Cassidy bill. He is someone who, you know, very famously rallied against the lack of process, you know, gave this long floor speech about, you know, how the Senate needs to return to normal order. The process around this bill, if it passes, will be everything happening in about 72 hours. One hearing, a partial CBO score, and a vote. Because of—and because of the way um, the rules—this is technically being considered as an amendment to the larger Senate bill, the Better Better Care Reconciliation Act— because of that because it is an amendment it actually is only eligible for 90 seconds of debate on the floor so we're literally Wait, you're <laughs> kidding me. It might be 2 minutes. I've seen different estimates from different wonks. But let's say let's be generous and say <laughs> 2 minutes. So each side will get <laughs> at max 60 seconds to make their case for and against this bill on the Senate floor.
0: So there will be less debate. There will be less floor debate of this bill than there's been weeds debate of this bill. Yes. So, uh, what? what like, saying? what we're
1: doing right now is about <laughs> thirty times longer than the Senate debate that would happen. Like, it is. I'm right now in the middle of buying a house. It is very possible that they will draft this bill, have a hearing on it, get their partial score, and vote in like less time than it is taking me to close on this house, which is like an expensive purchase, but it is also not equal to one sixth of the economy. <laughs> I, I am very curious to see how. McCain navigates the next week. And I also, the you know, other folks to watch here, how Democrats watch this, because I think this is setting up a precedent to do a lot of health care legislating with very little process around it. And, you know, I don't know what lessons Democrats will take from it, but you, there is the Sanders single-payer bill sitting out there, and there is a desire to, you know, go further than the Affordable Care Act that is getting very, very strong that this bill has— um, I think 16 co-sponsors along with Sanders, it will be interesting to see, you know, how this process ripples when the Democrats eventually at some point control the Senate.
0: I know what lessons Democrats are going to take. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I do want to go back to McCain for a minute, yeah. though, because something that, that I think is a very important piece of this. Lindsey Graham is John McCain's best friend. Like if you, it, the answer to the question of why might John McCain vote for this bill that violates all the reasons he didn't vote for the other bill and is in fact a worse process, and like everybody was sort of like relieved to just see this thing gone, and 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 now we're back, is because like Lindsey Graham like is like a son to John McCain, they are incredibly incredibly close, and uh, the final move in this might have been that the problem with the last bill was it was not drafted by John McCain's best friend. And that's not, I think, a super good reason to remake the American health care system. It's not a, a compelling health policy argument. But the expectation among most people is that John McCain will not vote against a bill that Graham has drafted in this way. So right now, I think the people who are—Rand Paul has been very—he's been very aggressive in the way he has talked about this bill. You've, you've suggested to me that maybe it's more of a negotiating posture. He seems very— definitive to me, but I don't know. But so Rand Paul right now is in the no category. Um, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, which the two of them would be enough to kill the bill, uh, have been very coy. So Susan Collins is sort of talking about concerns but has not yet come out against it, is my understanding. Yes. And Murkowski is interesting because this bill is extremely bad for Alaska. Um, her governor has come out against the bill. who's a Republican mm-hmm. governor. Um, she's not come out against it yet, but has said their concerns and said she needs numbers. She's not going to get these numbers in time. One sub-theme of all this is Cassidy is going around to different Republican offices. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know where you're going, <laughs> and trying, it's
0: crazy. Trying to confuse them, as far as I can tell. So he, he's going around with these numbers that show that all these states get funding increases. But as the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities pointed out, what he's doing is comparing his bill to his bill. So he's not comparing funding under his bill to Obamacare, but he's just comparing like, like his, like, just like the literal path of funding and there's inflation and things like that. And so he, from what I can tell, he's got a lot of people confused. They think that like, it sounds like what he's saying is funding for all these states goes up under this bill, but compared to what they are doing now and like what is going to happen to them under current law, it goes quite a bit down. But this is one reason I think they do not want. I mean, they don't have time to get a congressional budget office score given that they've decided should I do this by next Saturday? But it's one reason they don't want one because if when people get a look at the real numbers of this and particularly state by state numbers, it's really devastating for like Alaska and Ohio. I'm very, as I mentioned earlier, I'm surprised Dean Heller's um co-sponsoring. I mean, I think actually Heller co-sponsored this bill, did not understand what it would do, and has now sponsored a bill that would be really bad for Nevada. And so The thing that he was trying to do this whole time, which is, like, be hip to hip with his super popular governor, Brian Sandoval. Now Sandoval is, like, saying—has written a letter to Mitch McConnell saying, please do not bring this bill to the floor. And Dean Heller's name is on the bill. So that seems bad. And the
1: same thing is happening in Louisiana, where um, Louisiana's health secretary, who is a Democrat, sent a letter to Bill Cassidy saying, like, please do not bring this bill to the floor. It would be very, very bad for our state. We would not be able to run Medicaid expansion anymore um, so you see that happening for a few of these sponsors. One of the things that surprises me is the momentum this has gotten, given that it is very poor policy and one that kind of has hung out in the background for a long time, like has kind of been there as this like B-side bill that no one's really getting into. And at first it seemed like to me it was gaining traction because it was literally the only thing that had not yet been rejected. And that still seems to be the case. But again, like we were talking about, the car analogy is not— a great reason to get on it. Um, but it also feels like it's happening with less attention. like I don't know, I know like we at Vox have been covering this like really aggressively, but there's an interesting um, chart from the Wesleyan Media project where it shows you're not seeing the spike in coverage among local newspapers that you did around the other bills. There's a lot happening right now. Um, you know I I've been booked for a number of radio and television interviews this week on the bill. All but one have been canceled because of the hurricane. Oh, that a lot of the coverage right now, you know, I was at CNN earlier today, and it was like hurricane, hurricane, hurricane. Like tiny, tiny Graham Cassidy segments. Like more hurricane coverage. I am curious how much of that is giving Republican senators like a bit of um, a freer zone with less pushback from constituents, with less coverage of what's going on, and the fact this is a really complex bill. Like we don't fully understand what's going to what what it would do. There's very little analysis of it just because it's moved so quickly. So we have um, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities has put out numbers. Cassidy has put out numbers. This morning, another think tank put out numbers. But this data has not been readily available, so there's just not a lot of ways to analyze it. And I wonder if that is giving Republicans an environment that it feels a little easier to move this forward with less focus and less understanding of what it would actually do in the future.
0: My impression is that a lot of the big coverage spikes have come around CBO scores Mm -hmm. because those CBO scores gave newspapers, like, a number, you know, like, things to put in the article body, (laughs) which, like, right now it's hard to do, in particular if you're a small newspaper Mm -hmm. and you don't have dedicated health policy, you know, reporters. uh, It's one way in which doing this without time for a real score, so they're going to get a score that's just going to say, like, presumably it'll reduce Mm -hmm. the budget deficit, um because it cuts all this money absent the score that allows these papers to talk about it i think it'll get less coverage on the other hand when you get into that final 72 mm-hmm. hour window i i do you know if it looks like it's going to pass i assume it'll get coverage but the whole thing is very it's very very depressing and i don't know sometimes like you want to take a step back and just say this is just really irresponsible to try to remake the healthcare system on a bill that you can't even, don't even have time and are not taking time to just get a CBO score on for the house to vote for a bill. It can't amend, um, that it's never, it's not like this bill has gone through the house and back to the Senate that, you know, I mean, sometimes you get that. And at the end, you have like, finally, there is a real up or down vote, but like the house has never considered this bill. <laughs> like ever, and but they're, they're
1: lining up. I mean, and they're Freedom lining up, Caucus yeah. wants to pass it. But they have
0: no idea, and none of these, none of these folks. And by the way, this includes, in my view, Graham and Cassidy. They have no idea what this bill will do. Like, there's just not been the time. There's not been the analysis. Like Cassidy's office does not like have the um, the resources to do proper analyses of a, of like a full bill like this. Like they just they are lining up to transform the system with no idea of what the consequences will be. A lot of what they're saying about it is misleading. Um, and what's, I think, in some ways, like, doubly, triply galling about it is that Graham and Cassidy, on the Republican side, were supposed to be the good guys. Like, Cassidy is a smart guy, and he has, like, you know, has had really interesting interviews mm-hmm. with you about healthcare, And, like, Graham is a guy who cares about how the Senate works and, like, does try to work across the aisle. And it's, like, there can be this tendency to look at the Republican Party and be like, oh, Donald Trump, you know, um, I just did an interview for my for my other podcast with Ryan Salam, and and we, he kept sort of blaming why the process is bad on Donald Trump, and 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 you know the fact that nobody's ready for him to win, but it's not Trump, like it's the congressional wing of the party, and it's not just like the congressional leadership, like we're now seeing it filters all the way down into the folks who you would have thought of as like the ones who would try to like get this whole thing back on track, and even they like for reasons I, I don't fully understand, Graham typically does not care about health care that much. They seem to have gotten themselves, you know, locked into this process uh, in a in a way that, if something terrible happens and they're accidentally really and they're accidentally successful, like this is not going to work. This isn't legislation that will work, and they have not prepared themselves or their party or the states or HHS or anyone else for the ways in which it will not work. It's it would be a total catastrophe.
1: Here's something new to chew on. Many recent studies suggest that having good oral health impacts your overall health. Yet most of us do not brush our teeth properly. You can start brushing better today. Introducing Quip, the new company that's refreshing the way people brush their teeth. Quip is an electronic toothbrush that packs premium vibration and timer features into an ultra slim design that is half the cost of bulkier brushes. Quip is backed by leading dentists and was named as one of Time Magazine's best inventions of 2016. They won a 2016 GQ Grooming Award and made it on Oprah's 2017 New Year's O-List. Quip starts at just $25. It's basically like Apple designed a toothbrush, but without the big price tag. And you can even subscribe to receive new brush heads on a dentist-recommended three-month plan for just $5, including shipping. Right now, go to getquip.com weeds to get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash weeds. G E T Q U I P dot com slash
0: weeds. All right, let's talk some white paper. All right, let's so do it. So we got a, a, an interesting white paper this week. It's by Cass Sunstein, who you may remember from such um, government jobs as regulatory czar under the Obama administration. Uh, previous had, hits include. Previous <laughs> hits include. He's also a very celebrated law professor, has written, I think, somewhere between seven and 9,000 different books. Um, he's a very productive guy. Uh, but he's got a pretty interesting white paper, new paper out. Uh, it's a. It says at the top, I want to note, very pre- preliminary draft, but you can download it at the Social Science Research Network, uh, and it's called Unleashed. And this is not one of those math-heavy empirical white papers. This is a theory, really. This is a, a long essay on ways in which social change comes from the unleashing of preferences that were there before but were repressed by social norms, or um, conversely, new norms create preferences that didn't exist before. So, he sort of explains these two ideas. So, the first one, which is the unleashing of hidden preferences, which I think is pretty interesting, he writes, under the pressure of social norms, people sometimes falsify their preferences. They do not feel free to say or do as they wish. Once norms are weakened or revised through private efforts or law, it becomes possible to discover pre existing preferences. And, And that's the part of this paper that I think is most directly interesting at this moment. He does not get into this until sort of the end. But Donald Trump is, in this vision, something what he calls a norm entrepreneur, and he is changing norms, he is changing what it is okay to say, and thus unleashing preferences. He is making it, uh, for instance, seem more acceptable to be part of a white nationalist march in, in Charlottesville. And so he does get at this pretty directly. Um, Sunstein writes, in the aftermath of the election of President Donald Trump, many people fear that something of this kind has happened. The basic idea is that he's a norm entrepreneur and he's going to weaken or eliminate their constraining effects. So he then actually brings up some research that's pretty interesting, showing that, Before the election, um, there was uh, an experiment on people, and basically people would donate to an anti-immigrant group, but they wanted to be anonymous. And after the election, they didn't care about anonymity anymore. So Donald Trump, by changing the cultural, socio-political arena, had made people feel better about expressing and being known for being anti-immigrant. And so what I just think is interesting about this paper, and there are a lot of pieces of it to dig into, but is one way to think about what Trump is or could be doing it it, to the country right now. He's not achieved a lot on policy, but I think he's achieved quite a bit on norm-breaking. And I think he's made a lot of things and ideas and arguments that were somewhat uh, verboten in, in American life feel more plausible, feel more acceptable, feel like something you can say more loudly. Obviously, he's pretty clear about this. This is what the whole political correctness fight is really about. But but Sunstein, I think, does a nice job here of attaching it to a little bit more of a grounded theory in how it might work.
1: And one of the things I found most interesting about this paper was looking at the intersection between laws and norm and how one of the arguments he makes there is that laws can change norms beyond just, you know, being words on a piece of paper that change how something works. And he cites this really interesting example that I wasn't aware of where he notes that... Um, with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, some of the restaurants and hotels that were regulated by it actually lobbied in favor of it. So this is a restaurant that presumably could have integrated, like could have served white and Black customers. There was no law saying this is not allowed. You have to segregate. But, you know, he makes the point here, which is not really a way I thought it through and was kind of an interesting shift for me, was, you know, they wanted to be able to point to the law. They wanted to be able to say, look, like, this is how things work. Like this is the law we abide by and it's good business for them, right? Like this is a restaurant that would like to sell food to as many people as possible. So it is in their economic interest to have to be able to serve African American customers. And I thought that was, you know, an interesting way to think through how how laws can change the norms that it's not just a new regulation, but then you you see this shift on what is a normal, acceptable way to see your consumers. And even if that was something that was sort of there but a hidden preference before, that the law essentially made it a public preference and that, as he argues, can have some cascade effects to people who then see, you know, black and white people eating in the same restaurant. Yeah,
0: and I think this all gets to this, this political correctness debate, which is a complicated debate and has been defined in almost its language in a very certain way now. So, Political correctness is itself; it has, I think, been turned into something of a slur. Right? If you're being politically correct, that is nobody ever means that is a good thing. Uh, over in Berkeley last week or right now or something, there is a uh, they're having Berkeley Free Speech Week, which is a lot of I mean, is it, a lot of conservatives, some of whom who have pretty repellent opinions. Um, out there sort of framing what they're doing, not even under, like, their own opinions, but under, like, a a defense of free speech. And so there's this whole dialogue happening right now about how important it is to be able to say anything. And and, uh, the defense for some of this stuff is, like, not even that it's right, but just that it's bad if we're in a politically correct society where where some things are um, discouraged – but it's always a case in any society at any time that you have some speech that is celebrated and some speech that is discouraged, totally separate from whether or not you are free to make that speech. This is a longtime view of conservatives who have forever, you know, had speech they liked and speech they didn't like. Um, it's also a view of liberals. And we're in a real tussle right now about what kind of speech and 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 we are going to accept um, and what kind of speech we are going to sanction through, through criticism. And... I think that we are having a lot of trouble just having that conversation uh, in a clear way, right? I think we are having a lot of trouble. You know, there is a real fight right now about just how do you, uh, about what how much sensitivity people should have in referring to transgender folks. So there are, there are conservatives who, for reasons I do not understand, really do not want to accept that Chelsea Manning has changed her gender and wants to be referred to in this way. And just refer to her the way the way she wants to be referred to. To them, that is not a reasonable speech claim. And to a lot of other folks, like, no, like, that should be a normal basic thing of politeness. Like, you know, like, just, like, be decent to one another. I think we've had a lot of trouble in the country in the last couple of years having a discussion about speech where we all agree we have quite broad constitutional protections for free speech, But also, we should be a little bit more clear-eyed about the fact that it has always been the case that one way social change happens is that some speech is celebrated and some speech is made impolite. Um, I am not really allowed to walk around my office cursing at people. I'm not allowed to walk outside um, and, and curse at people. Now, it may not be that what I'm doing is illegal, though, depending on how I do it, I guess it could be. But We just have norms, um, and those norms are are built for reasons. And I think what Sunstein does a good job of in this this paper is noting that when norms begin to fall, or when norms begin to change, it can really change what is acceptable in society very fast. Because oftentimes, it turns out that where society really was, was in some way repressed— or shaped by the norms in which we were existing. And so he uses as an example right up at the top a conversation he had with a student who he saw that student, a law school student, he saw that student talking to an older professor and basically being mildly sexually harassed. And, you know, he went up and said to her, like, hey, that didn't look okay to me. And initially she's like, no, no, it's fine. But then she comes to him later and is like, no, that actually wasn't fine at all. Mm -hmm. And just by being a professor who changed the norm to her, like, actually, you can criticize this, he allowed her real preference, her real view, which was like, actually, I feel terrible about this. And I've just been, you know, mildly assaulted in in my place of learning um, to come out. So that this idea of like there being hidden preferences, I think is is really useful. And it's a useful way of thinking about what norms and what societal views about which speech is acceptable and which speech is discourteous or unkind or regressive, um, what it's actually doing.
1: Yeah. One of the things He didn't go there, but it felt like to me there's a bit of an intersection with a lot of the research. I think you've written on more, and I've written on a bit, bit, looking at tribalism and how kind of people decide, like, what is the norm where they live? Because a lot of this is written kind of big—again, this is a preliminary draft. It's written big picture about how norms change in the entire country. But I think, like, in the flip side of that is seeing norms change in different places and very different people having a very different set of norms— that they operate in, um, you know, I think back to like the reporting I've done in Kentucky about the Affordable Care Act, and I think there it is like the norm to say like Obamacare is a bad law, and I think it should be repealed, and that and that is a norm you hear from everybody else. One of the things that Sunstein writes in this paper is how you see these kind of norm cascades where a person one says, "Well, Obamacare is terrible; it raised premiums," and the other person like might disagree privately, but they're not going to express it because you know the norm is that this is a bad law. And then when you have all these people suppressing or some number of people suppressing the view that they actually hold because they understand the norm is quite different, that I, I think like, I don't know, I'm curious how you think about it because you've read a lot of this research, but that it seems like this could also be a way, this could be a theory that it helps explain the polarization and how You have people living in different places, thinking very, very differently about the things they are observing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and so one way in which I think it is really explanatory of the the world we're in is to imagine that... Different tribes, different communities, different groups, they have uh, different, obviously, preferences, and they have different internal norms. Um, What is okay to say and do and ways to act in Manhattan is different than what is okay to say and do and how you should act in rural Oklahoma. I mean, even in very small ways, the amount of time that you wait while somebody is paused speaking— in New York City, and polite conversation, and the amount of time you wait when somebody is paused speaking in the South are just very different, and it creates a lot of confusion when people from New York talk to people from the South, and a lot of feeling of New Yorkers as being rude. But in their world, they're not being rude; like you just wait less time. Um, but when when they then go to Kentucky, they're interrupting people constantly. <laughs> um, so that's like a, a fun linguistic finding. But but this is true in a broader way, and and something that I think is happening is that we're in a period of norm flux. And appear to very contested norms. So, how do you talk about and think about gender during the election? Is I think a really good version of this or, or a good way to think about it. You have one political coalition that really is trying to say, hey, you know, you there's a lot of implicit bias in the way you talk about that stuff. I mean, one thing that you saw playing out a lot in in, in journalism during the election was criticism of journalists who would comment a lot on what female politicians, Hillary Clinton, but not only Hillary Clinton, were wearing, right? And the note that, like, well, male politicians don't get all this, like, are they in a gray suit or not today kind of stuff. And, you know, there would be pushback on this and a feeling of, hey, like, I'm, you know, this is normal. Like, people have been doing this for a long time. This was a place where, because norms were changing, a long-time view was starting to be able to be expressed, right? There had been a preference among a lot of journalists and, and and a lot of folks in politics, many of them women, to maybe not have it be normal that female politicians get criticized or assessed by their appearance in this unusual way. As that came out, there there was backlash. Um I think one of the things right now is that the tribes are colliding a lot more. They're colliding online because everything goes viral on Facebook. They're colliding in politics because politics is much more nationalized than it used to be. They're colliding because Fox News spends a lot of time elevating places where, like, like a liberal group on campus is trying to establish a new norm. And, you know, MSNBC spends time on, on, on the opposite. And so one of the difficulties is that—and this is related to what this paper says, although not exactly it— Is that one way you might imagine sort of peace to 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 reign across the land is that different groups have different equilibria. Um, but right now, I think though that's become a lot harder. It's become particularly a lot harder in politics and on the internet. So the different groups are coming into a lot of of conflict. Um, small things are getting blown up. Suddenly, everybody knows about something that happened at Oberlin College or in Charlottesville. Right where back when we had less nationalized media and less internet, it just would have been harder to have all this information. And so there's a lot more of an effort to try to create a more national norm about what you can and can't say, which also means a more national set of opinions that are okay and, and and are not okay. And that's creating a lot of friction. Donald Trump pretty explicitly runs saying, nope, you should be able to say all this stuff. Uh, like, we should not have this norm, this set of norms that you're trying to put down, even if you're not trying to put them down in law. Like, it should be fine to talk the way I talk. And Hillary Clinton did not believe it should be fine to talk the way Donald Trump talked about Alicia Machado and call her a fat pig and all this stuff. Um, but where it used to be, maybe that the way that would be dealt with is like just one tribe would have one set and another would have another. Now there's this real conflict, and um, and, and it's leading to a, a lot of tension and anger in our politics. I agree. You know, it'd make our politics better
1: if everyone listened to the weeds.
0: Yeah, I, if I, people
1: listen, recommended the weeds to their friends,
0: sent it by emails. <laughs> you can send weeds by emails. Can you? I think you. I, can, mean, I guess you could you just send, a send, link. send the link. The link to the iTunes, or you could just write. Please go listen to The Weeds wherever you find your fine podcasts. Yes. Um, Make it a norm
1: in your community that everyone listens to The Weeds. I do want
0: to know, because I think Weeds listeners might might have some folks like this, Um, we are looking uh, at Vox for a policy editor. Uh, If you are an experienced editor listening to the show and you love the idea of assigning stories on... Piketty Saez papers and Cass Sunstein papers and Graham Cassidy and all the weedsy things we talk about, uh, you should go to voxmedia.com slash careers uh, where we have the listening for that. Again, that is voxmedia.com slash careers. Uh, We have a policy job up. We have a bunch of other jobs up uh, for writers and and video makers and all kinds of things. Uh, But I think some of you all in the audience might be interested.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, you can find the discussion continues in our Facebook group, which if you just search for the weeds. You will find some marijuana related things, but you will also find our fantastic Facebook group. Um, thank you to Peter Leonard, our producer. Thank you, Ezra, for co-hosting today with me. And we will see you back on Friday. Hey, Weeds listeners. Thanks again for tuning into this episode. We wanted to take this moment to insert a shameless, well, actually very proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. Vox Media is the fastest-growing modern media company known for its standout technology and high-fidelity advertising. Their platform is what supports our growth here at The Weeds and at Vox.com, and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics that you, our listeners, care the most about. For us, that is obviously policy, maybe health policy— But for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether it's SB Nation, which tells you the story behind the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy and what to obsess about in the tech world, or Eater, which is basically my go-to website whenever I'm traveling to a new city and need to find out what restaurants to eat at. What unites all of these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality because we believe in the power of going deeper and because we believe in the best of our audiences. Because if you aren't going deep, where are you going?